marvellous. So as I said at the very beginning, uh, this uh, evening we're thinking about worship. Uh, and over the last uh, three months or so, we've been uh, all of the sermons have had some element of uh, whole life worship uh, about them. Uh, if you've been to any of them, you'll know that uh, is the case. Uh, and we've concentrated up until this point uh, almost entirely on what whole life worship means. By which I mean what worship looks like outside of this building, not necessarily what happens on a Sunday, and what worship happened, what worship looks like uh, most for most of us in our Monday to Saturday, uh, not in our quiet times that we have uh, with the Lord. This evening, uh, I actually want us to focus particularly on worship, uh, in by which I mean what we do here together on a Sunday, and what hopefully you have chance to do uh, on your own uh, through the week. Uh, I'll have said a few times through the series, there are a number of words in the Bible that are used and translated as worship. I'm focusing on two words uh, particularly uh, this evening, one in the Hebrew and uh, another in the Greek. Uh, I did both at college and my tutor told me that uh, it doesn't matter how you pronounce these things, provided you're consistent and confident. Uh, So the Hebrew word is shachar, it's got a ha at the back of the throat, shachar, and the the Greek word is proskunio. Uh, which uh, both of the words mean pretty much exactly the same thing, and that is to bow down in reverence uh, before the Lord, to prostrate oneself uh, before the Lord uh, in reverence of him. We see this uh, throughout the Bible, both these words uh, throughout the Bible. The first time we pick up the Hebrew, the Shachar word, uh, is in Genesis chapter 18, uh, where Abraham meets God, that passage where he meets the, the, the three visitors. This verse, Genesis chapter 18, verse 2. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. The bowed low there is the shachar word uh, that we see in the Hebrew. You can tell I quite enjoy saying that. And uh, I'm hoping that you will all have learned it by the time we leave here this evening. Uh, in the New Testament, the first time we see this proscunio word uh, is in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, this is where the wise men, the magi, meet with Herod uh, and they say where is the one who has been born king of the Jews we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him that word there worship is the word proskunio uh, in in the Greek but it's used countless times throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament and this idea of reverence of bowing down before the Lord should be what our worship on a Sunday and our worship through the week reflects in some way or another. I'd like to suggest that at times it does not uh, for us individually. At times, it perhaps looks a little bit more like a video that I'm going to show you in a moment. I have shown this once before, uh, but it's my absolute favorite video on the whole of YouTube. Um, And so I thought it would be good for us to watch it all. Let's watch this uh, together and it will explain what I mean. I will sing of your love on Sundays. Only sing of your love on Sundays. Sing of your love on Sundays, then this feeling is gone by Monday. I surrender some, I surrender some, Jesus. I at 
instills one of two responses in, uh, in, in me, first of all, uh, and in other people. Uh, either uh, how funny that is uh, and how, how good it is and uh, maybe a little bit of, thank goodness I'm not like that, um, or alternatively, a little bit of, oh goodness, uh, maybe there is an element of my worship, myself in that. I can see something of myself in that video uh, when I come into a worship space. Just to give this a little bit more St. Paul's context, uh, some of you may know that about a year ago, uh, the PCC advertised for an associate vicar. Uh, we didn't appoint, uh, but as part of that process, um, a number in the church, about 35 or so, completed what's called the National Church Developments uh, Healthy Church Survey, I think. It's a pithy title, uh, and I've remembered it well, as you can imagine. Um, it's about 150 questions uh, about the life of the church, and what happens is they have a statement uh, and they have to mark it between one and five uh, as to whether they agree with that statement or not. Those statements are then pushed into a machine and given a score, uh, depending on how everybody's scored it. Uh, and the statements that score the lowest are the things that we need to work on. So regardless of whether it's a positive statement or a negative statement, it's given a score that's low, uh, and that means that we need to work on it. Uh, they're put into eight different categories. Two of them uh, are important for this evening. The first one, passionate uh, spirituality. The lowest scoring thing uh, in passionate spirituality said this. 
I firmly believe that God will work even more powerfully in our church in the coming years. That means that just over a year ago, 35, 40 members uh, of the church, mostly in leadership, wrote that they did not firmly believe that they would see God work even more powerfully in our church in the coming years. The next thing uh, which is relevant for this evening is inspiring worship services. The lowest scoring point that we had on that uh, was this one. It's, I am often bored during worship services. That meant that the majority of people that filled in that questionnaire said that they were often bored during worship services. Now, there are all sorts of reasons why that uh, might be the case, and I'm not going to pretend to know them all. Um, I suspect there were 35 different reasons for the 35 people that responded in the ways uh, that they did. I expect um, for some people, not experiencing God's presence when they come into a worship space has a lot to do with complacency. It's very easy to become complacent in life. It's very easy to become complacent in church. It's also very easy to be distracted by lots going on in our lives, lots going on in the world outside of here. Sometimes life can be really hard and that can take away all of our attention from coming into this space and worshipping God or worshipping God at home. Perhaps for one or two, it was more serious. Perhaps for one or two, uh, when we looked at uh, the fact that um, God said to the Ephesian church in Revelation, you have forgotten your first love. Maybe one or two had that reason for writing what they did. Maybe there's some disunity going on between some people and others. Maybe there's some disunity going on within themselves. We'll come back and look at that a bit bit later. There could be all sorts of reasons why it is that people wrote what they wrote. Uh, And I'm going to give you a moment, a second in a moment, to just think about that for yourself. Rather interestingly, I did this survey survey in my last church as part of my dissertation. Um, And the first one, I firmly believe that God will work even more powerfully in our church in the coming years, was the lowest scoring question there of all of the questions. It wasn't our lowest scoring completely. It was one of the lowest, but it wasn't the lowest of all of them. Uh, I'm rather worried it's following me around. I'm hoping it's nothing to do with me, Uh, but it was the lowest scoring one there as well. The reason there, uh, this is quantitative research for those of you who are statisticians, that's right, Um, and um, for my dissertation I did some qualitative research with the people in Nailsy, and the reason in Nailsy was because about 30 years ago they saw an extraordinary move of the Spirit in their church, with God doing really powerful things But then they haven't seen that over the last 28 years. And so as each day and each week has gone by, their expectation of what God will do and the fact that God will work more powerfully than they had seen 30 years ago has waned. So as I say, there are all sorts of reasons why we might answer these questions. I'm just going to get a sip of water. uh, But while I do that, I'd like you to just think about these two and ask yourself where you would place it between one and five. Uh, And also, just think to yourself why it is uh, that you would do that. And I'll be back with you in a second. That water tasted slightly strange. I think I might have drunk someone else's, but never mind. (laughs) I'm sure it doesn't matter. Um, 
well, you'll be pleased to know we're moving towards our passage. Just before we uh, read our passage, before uh, I get Lisa to read it to us, I just want to have a bit of a thought about the context behind it. Our passage is from 2 Chronicles, um, chapter 5 this evening. Um, I was going to do a corporate confession with us all and get us to raise our hands. I'm not going to, so you can do it just in your mind. But how many of us, I wonder, when we read, particularly in the Old Testament, there are lists of names, uh, a list of numbers of people, uh, when there are lists of uh, building materials used, when there are direct and, and, and very clear instructions about how the building work is done. Um, how many of us, when we get to those sections of the Old Testament, either just completely skip over it um, or mentally tune out as we read it, I wonder? I wonder how many of us do that. We don't need to praise your hand, although some of you are. Well done. I mean, I'm putting my hand up. It's fine. I know that I have done that in the past. The whole of chapters 1 to 4 of 2 Chronicles talks about this uh, in detail. It talks about the palace uh, which Solomon has been commissioned to build. It talks about the various uh, scale and the various building instructions that are involved in it. Um, I don't want us to look at that in any great detail, but I do want to look at just one, uh, two verses, which are 2 Chronicles, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And it says this, I think it's on the screen. In fact, I'll read, I'll read it from the screen, it's slightly different. Now Solomon decided to build a house for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. So Solomon assigned 70,000 men to carry loads and 80,000 men to quarry stone in the mountains and 3,600 to supervise them. My maths is right, that's 153,600 people. That's a lot of people. Just to put that into some sort of context, at the last census, there were 55,000 people living in the town of Royal Leamington Spa. If you include Whitnash and Warwick, there was 95,000 people. There were three times the number of people that live in Leamington Spa involved in building this temple and this palace in the, in the Old Testament. Why? Why so many people? Why such a huge building? As you go on, you see the size and the scale and the building. Well, for the Jews, this building was a visible sign of a God. It was a visible representation of the God that they worshipped. And so it needed to be big. It needed to be opulent. It needed to be extraordinary because the God that they worshipped was extraordinary. The God they worshipped was extraordinary. And so they needed a temple that was extraordinary for him. It would also be the place where the Ark of the Covenant would rest. Uh, The Ark of the Covenant was carried around uh, by the Jews. It was what God had instructed them to build in Exodus. He said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And when they moved from place to place, they moved the Ark of the Covenant with them so that God's presence dwelt with them when they went from various places. And the temple was going to be the place where God's presence would dwell where they would put the Ark of the Covenant. So the extraordinary God required an extraordinary building. And we come to our passage this evening as the opening of this palace. We see the worship service as it unfolds, as they open this palace for the first time. I'm going to my voice arrest and ask Lisa if she'll come and read that to us. So the reading this evening is taken from 2 Chronicles, chapter 5, and it's verses 1 to 14. When all the work Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, 
He brought in the things his father David had dedicated, the silver and gold and all the furnishings, and he placed them in the treasuries of God's temple. Then Solomon summoned to Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of all the Israelite families to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion to the city of David. And all the Israelites came together to the king at the time of the festival in the seventh month. When all the elders of Israel arrived, the Levites took up the ark and they brought up the ark and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The Levitical priests carried them up and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. The priests then brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant into its temple in the, in the inner sanctuary of the Holy Temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark and covered the Ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends, extending from the ark, could be seen from in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place. And they are still there today. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. The priests then withdrew from the holy place. All the priests who were there had consecrated themselves, regardless of their divisions. All the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Haman, Jedathan, and their sons and relatives, stood on the east side of the altar, dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals, harps, and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. The trumpeters and musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, the singers raised their voice in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good. His love endures forever. When the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. That's what I want for my worship, uh, whether it's in this place or whether it's when I'm at home. I want to be so filled with the glory of the Lord that I'm no longer able to do whatever it is that I'm supposed to be doing. I want to see us draw closer to God and to know something of his presence so that we see the glory of the Lord at work in our lives around us. 
Now, before we look at this passage and how it might help us to get towards that place, I just want to make two things uh, clear uh, that I think are foundational for the rest of what I want to say, just very quickly. Uh, the Firstly, the idea that the temple is the place where God's presence resides, this idea that we see in the passage, that the temple is the place where God's presence resides. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that the God's spirit dwells within your midst. So God's spirit now lives inside of us. I've said this before. Pre-Pentecost, the presence of God was for a particular people at a particular time for a particular purpose. Post-Pentecost, the presence of God permeates the heart of every believer. God's presence is in us. We are the temples within which God now resides. And we are far more beautiful and far more extraordinary than Solomon's temple could ever have been. We were worked in a far harder, it was a far harder to make us than it was to make Solomon's temple. So that's the first thing I want us to just be able to understand, that we are at the place where God's presence resides. And if you don't quite grasp that, then please come along to our Living Free or come along to Living Free teaching that we'll do in the summer. We'll talk about God's presence in us more through that series. The second second foundational thing that I just want us to uh, clock in our head is this idea of there being more available to us. I really loved, as I was preparing for this talk, this picture um, of the Ark of the Covenant being brought into the temple that we see in uh, verse 7. The priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord into its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place beneath the wings of the cherubim. The, The Ark of the Covenant is the place in which the Jews believed the presence of God resided. So as far as the Jews were concerned, the presence of God was brought into the temple by them by bringing the Ark of the Covenant. And yet in verse 13, as I've just read, the temple, uh, the temple, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. So despite the fact that the presence of the Lord was already there, God came in a greater sense by falling in this cloud. There is always more of God's spirit available to us. That's why at the beginning of worship services, we will often ask, Lord, when you fall in this place. Why we sometimes sing, Lord, let your glory fall in this place. There is more of God's spirit available to us, despite the fact that we carry God's spirit uh, within us. There is always more. If you'd like to know more about that, uh, I've said the word more too many times, um, I can highly recommend this book by Simon Ponsonby. It is helpfully called More. It's very easy for you to remember. Uh, The subtitle is How Can You Have More of the Spirit When You Already Have Everything in Christ? Simon is a a teaching pastor in Oxford. I highly recommend that uh, book to you. It's great if that's something that you would like to explore more. But from this passage then, what can we learn from this passage particularly about how to explore, experience more of God's presence in our lives? Well, firstly, I think that setting and our expectation are key uh, when it comes to worship. The whole of the first seven verses that Lisa's just read to us explain how all of the people going into that place were preparing themselves and coming into that place of worship. Solomon was calling different people in to worship God. They knew that they were going into this temple to worship. Their mindset was one of worship. 
Now, they did that because God is worthy of praise. They knew God as the God who was worthy of praise. They weren't distracted by building works. The temple was finished. They weren't distracted by other things going on outside. They were in that place, awestruck perhaps by the building, but in that place to worship God. I wonder when we come into this place, where our minds are, where our hearts are, what we're thinking when we come to worship God. I wonder what about when we have a time of quiet at home, or when we have a time of worship at home, what our expectations are, whether we're expecting to meet with God, or whether we're expecting God to move. Uh, I know that a few months ago, um, I uh, was uh, needing to prepare a talk uh, for the Sunday. This will shock you to your very core, I'm sure, but clergy occasionally work more than one day a week. Um, and on this particular week, I had worked all of the seven days before, uh, and the normal morning of quiet that I give myself, I'd had to uh, forego uh, to go to a funeral visit. Uh, and the Thursday uh, morning of quiet that I planned for the coming week, I'd had to give up for the funeral itself Um, and so I'd not had a period of extended quiet Uh, I'd had my worship obviously in the Sunday Uh, and I only had one gap in the diary to write this talk and it was Monday afternoon uh, for four hours from one o'clock and so I had my lunch sat down in my green chair which is where I write my talks uh, and I got my piece of paper and my pen and uh, my bible and I said right lord shoot that's it you've got four hours come on give this to me we can do this come on come on and nothing happened I didn't hear a word. I didn't know what to do. Eventually, the Lord just whispered, are you in me? Paul says throughout scripture, we should be in Christ. And I knew that I hadn't given time to worshiping God. I hadn't given time to being with him. And so I put down uh, the Bible and the pen and the paper, uh, although you can use a Bible in worship, and a pen and paper, in fact. Uh, But I put them down. I put some music on. And for just under four hours, I worshiped God. I got to the end of those four hours to go to have to go to another meeting, uh, and uh, I just still didn't have a talk. But um, I had experienced God's presence in my life. He'd drawn close to me, and I knew him uh, more powerfully than I had before. Fortunately, something got cancelled later in the week, so we did have a talk on the Sunday. It was all good. God was there. But how are we when we approach times of quiet with the Lord, and what are our expectations? What are our expectations when we come into this place? I was involved in a church a large number of years ago, a long, long time ago. Um, and uh, there was a particular worship leader who I didn't get on particularly well with. Uh, and they would often choose songs uh, that were in the wrong key, as far as I was concerned, so I couldn't sing them. They would often choose songs that they would sing out of rhythm. So as I was singing it, I was kind of going, you're not quite getting this right. Uh, they would often sing things out of tune um, as well. It was really hard uh, for me to worship. And whenever they led worship, uh, my face looked a bit like this. Now, there's a generational issue here, because most of you won't know who this is. This is Kevin from Kevin and Perry. Um, is Kevin Perry? I think that's right. Um, yes, I'm getting to the nods. Um, but essentially, that was what my face looked like uh, when I went into that space. I was not there ready to engage in worship. The, the first song, uh, I even remember what it was. It was Come Set Your Rule and Reign. Uh, that song uh, was being sung out of tune, out of time, in a key that I couldn't sing. And this, that was my face uh, as I came into that space. And it was, I was there for a few moments feeling very, very grumpy about it. And then eventually I just went, you know what? I'm not here for me. 
I'm, not, I'm here for the Lord. We don't worship primarily for ourselves. We worship for God. And so I uh, repented of the way that I was feeling, particularly towards the person leading worship, uh, but also just the way I was feeling generally. I asked for God's forgiveness, and I engaged as best as I could in that worship. I don't want to give you the impression of what happened next happened regularly. It hadn't happened in the whole time I'd been in that church uh, up until that point, and it hasn't happened since. But at the end of the worship set, somebody at the very front of the church shared openly, outwardly, a tongue of a foreign language. Uh, it didn't happen before. It never happened before. And uh, in Corinthians, it says that if a tongue is shared in that setting, then there should be a translation. And as this person shared this tongue, God whispered to me the translation. Now, am I saying that had I not have done that work of coming into God's presence um, at the beginning of that worship, that God wouldn't have been able to either speak to me or to speak to someone else? No, I'm not saying that. God is bigger uh, than, uh, than anything that we can put in the way of him. However, it was a lot easier for him to speak to me because I wasn't looking like Kevin uh, and I was doing uh, the work of worshipping him and I come before him. Now, I just want to give a quick health warning here, because what I'm not saying is that in order to worship God, you need to have your hands in the air or you need to physically be lying on the floor. Both of those two things are perfectly acceptable ways to worship God. And if that's what you would like to do when you worship God, I would be delighted, as I would be if you wanted to dance as you worship God. What I would prefer is that whatever, I I don't care what happens. No one cares what's going on on the outside. It's about what's going on in our hearts. One of the most profound times I've had with the Lord in a worship service setting, everyone else in the building has either been on the floor, arms in the air or dancing around me. And I have been sat very similar to the way that most of you are sat now, very quietly, just to myself. And to the outside world, you might not have known that I was engaged at all. But God was doing a deep and powerful work in me on that Sunday. It doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. It's about what's going on in our hearts and what's going on in our heads. So setting and our expectations when we come into a place are key. And I'm going to spend a little bit less time on the other things. But that's because I think it's so important. And we see that in this passage this evening. The second thing that we see in this passage is about declaring the need to declare God's praises. And now this is really important for all sorts of reasons. We saw it in the passage, they sang, they sang, he is good and his love endures forever. We sing God's praises because he's worthy of praise. But we also sing God's praises because he inhabits those praises. Psalm 22 tells us that he inhabits the praises of his people. One of the commentators, I found this quite helpful, uh, put it a bit like this. There are a few principles that are more essential to our understanding than this one. The presence of God's kingdom power is directly related to the practice of God's praise. The word enthroned seen throughout scripture indicates that wherever God's people exalt his name, he's ready to manifest his kingdom power in a way most appropriate to the situation as his rule is invited to invade our setting. Wherever God's people exalt his name, he's ready to manifest his kingdom power in a way most appropriate to the situation as his rule is invited to invade our setting. In order to see God's power at work, we need to be ready to declare his praises. Now, I know that there are times in our life when this is particularly hard. 
Many of you may know uh, the song Blessed Be Your Name uh, by Matt and Beth Redman. Some of you may know uh, that they wrote that in 2001 following their third miscarriage. They wrote that even in the darkest of days, still I will say, Lord, blessed be your name. My own story, Jess and I had a miscarriage about a year before Jacob uh, was born. And it was in that time that I knew that praising God, even in the darkest of days, was what I needed to do. My attendance at College Chapel was um, sporadic, to say the least, uh, most of the time. Mostly because it was very early in the morning and a long way from my house. But during that time, I was there every morning, speaking and singing God's praise. It's one of the reasons why I'm an Anglican, uh, and I love Anglican liturgy from time to time. We don't use a lot of it here, but we do use a bit. Anglican liturgy can often give us the words of praise that we need uh, when we can't find the words for ourselves. What's important is declaring God's praises, and God will inhabit those. God will meet us in those words of praise. Matt Redmond put it like this. Over the years, we've come to realize that worshiping God is a choice and it's the best choice we will ever make. It is a choice that we have to make to worship God sometimes. The final thing I think we see in this passage is about unity. And there are two sides uh, to this. Firstly, we see in verse 11, uh, the priests then withdrew from the holy place. All the priests who were there had consecrated themselves regardless of their divisions. And then in verse um, 13, it says the trumpeters and singers joined together to praise and thank the Lord with one voice. Uh, Occasionally, that's translated as unison. It doesn't mean that they were all singing the same thing. It means that they were united in their praises. Coincidentally, there were 120 priests playing the trumpet in this place. Uh, Now, we've occasionally had two trumpets in our worship band here, and that's pretty loud. 120 priests is very, very loud. If you get upset by loud music, uh, then we see a lot of it in Scripture. 120 priests playing the trumpets. Unity is important. Unity with one another is important. It's why the Anglican Church and the church around the world has for a long time shared the peace with one another before we come uh, to communion. It's why, truthfully, I told you at the very beginning that I wasn't doing this layout because Jonathan has gone, but I was doing it because of this sermon. Because Jonathan and I are united in us being like this. I don't want you to think that Jonathan and I are at odds with each other. We're absolutely not. Had he been here, we'd have done exactly the same thing. Our unity is important. Our unity as a wider team, as a PCC is important. Our unity as a church is important when we come into this place. It's important, I think, for a number of reasons too. Firstly, it's important spiritually that we are united with one another. It's also important because if we're not united with someone, that will take us out of this place and into that place. It will distract us from our worship so much that we don't uh, worship God in the fullness that we would like to and would be be able to if we were united. But I said at the very beginning that we are now the temple that God's presence resides. So what is it like to be united in that sense? What's it like for that temple uh, to be united? Uh, One of the famous uh, passages in Matthew's gospel where Jesus tells um, people not to worry. You'll know that. Do not worry about your life. Matthew 6. Uh, The word worry uh, is probably better translated as divided. 
And it might help us think about this in terms of unity a little bit more. And if you think about when you're worried about something, you can often feel conflicted about something or divided in one way. And Jesus is telling us not to worry, but to be whole, to be united, to come before him and to trust him. Jesus calls us away from that worry into his presence. Now, I know there is a medical condition of anxiety and some people have and struggle with anxiety greatly. And I also know uh, that saying to either those people or just anyone that's worrying about something, do not worry, is probably an unhelpful thing uh, to do because it just makes you worry a little bit more about the thing. But Jesus is saying, rather than just simply don't worry, but look to me. Don't just look, uh, don't think and concentrate on whatever it is that's causing you this anxiety. Concentrate on me and be whole. When I went into that church uh, all those years ago where the worship uh, I was struggling with, what was causing the most problem was that I was worried about the worship, worried about the way it was going, worried about the key that it was in, worried about the rhythm that it was in. Jesus says, do not worry about these things. Turn your eyes to me and worship me. So what then can we learn from this passage? Well, firstly, I think it tells us that uh, when we worship God, we need to be aware of what the purpose of the place is that we're going. So if we're going to church, we're going to worship God. We need to shake the dust from our feet, as I've often prayed. So cast away all the things that are outside of this building. And to come into this place with an expectation that we will meet with God in this place. We're to declare God's praises, not just in the high times, but in the low times as well. And we're to do that with a unity, both with each other, but also within ourselves, a wholeness, looking to the Lord. I'm going to pray for us uh, in a moment. Perhaps you'll stand with me uh, as I do that um, and the band can sort of take the many steps back uh, to their positions. You'll note that um, as I prayed earlier, I didn't pray a prayer of confession. Um, I did that on purpose because I'd like uh, to do that with us now. Lord, we uh, come before you recognising that there are times when we don't put you first, when we don't, um, when we are distracted by things going on outside of this building. We come to you recognizing that there are times when we're not united, either with our brothers and sisters or indeed just within ourselves. We come to you and recognize that there are times when we find it really hard to sing your praises. Lord, would you forgive us for those times? And would you remind us that there is nothing we can do to separate us from your great love for us?
we were praying before the service, we had a number of pictures and words. I just want to share two or three of them with you. Firstly, there was a picture of a brick wall and one of those builders' boulder things going through it and smashing it to smithereens. And the Lord saying, I want to break down the walls that you've put in place. Perhaps related, um, somebody called Sarah, perhaps, and the words, uh, and just letting burdens fall away and worship God. A reminder that God is the God for all seasons. Uh, those Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes verse, that there is a time and a place for everything. Remember, reminder of the awe and majesty of God and how sweet his name is. Lord, we come into this place once again to worship you. Psalm 44 was also shared. It says, Praise be to the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. He is my loving God and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield in whom I take refuge. Lord, you are indeed our loving God, our fortress, our stronghold and our deliverer, our shield and in one in whom we can take refuge. As we worship you now, whether that is through loud singing or whether it's in the quiet, Lord, would you meet with us? I love that picture so much of the Ark of the Covenant already being in the temple. Lord, we are already here. But that the cloud fell and your glory came in a greater sense. Lord, we long for your glory to fall in this place and for us to know it. So would you meet with us, we pray, in Jesus' name.